So I gave this speech one day. I took over a unit, a battalion-sized unit, and I gave the old speech that about like it's we're, it's us against them, everybody's against us, and it didn't work. And I was like, I'm dying here again. And somebody came up. One of the old guys came up to me. He goes, Hey, sir, these kids believe. I was like, What are they? They believe. He goes, Sir, they join the military because they believe in the promise of America. And I was humbled, right? So I had to change my approach. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. What a special year this is. You know, Heritage is celebrating its 50th anniversary. In fact, as we record this today, it is specifically our 50th anniversary. You'll be watching this a few days after that or listening to it. The point is, it's going to be the best year ever for Heritage in this country, and therefore the show. Not because of me, but because of the guests. This week's guest, former Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller, is here with me. He's still living in the area of the Imperial City. We're going to talk about his role as Acting Secretary, as well as a new book he has coming out. And, you know, we're probably going to stir the pot a little bit when it comes to updating conservative thinking about the Defense Department budget. Mr. Secretary Chris Miller, thank you for being here. Doc, Dr. Roberts, am I going to call you Dr. Roberts? No, you going to call me Mr. Secretary? I'm going to call that you would Chris. be really funny. Well, we can. No, no. I would, you can I was call hoping, me Kevin. <laughs> I can call you Kevin, but you, have, but you have your doctorate. You have your I PhD. Yeah, that's I, right. was just, I was just like presidentially appointed Senate confirmed. You actually earned your uh, <laughs> title. I just kind of fell into it. Well, we're going to talk about the falling into it and, and what you've learned as a result. But I, I will say this. A lot of our audience members know that I started a K through 12 school. And, you know, it was a startup school. We had no money. Uh, I didn't really make a whole lot of money, which was fine. It was the right thing to do. But this is the point. I'm out in the drop-off line in the morning. And one of the Wiseacre parents in South Louisiana rolled his window down after he dropped off his kids. He said, uh, Doc, my elbow hurts. I said, go read a history book. I see me in the morning. <laughs> So this, this became the running joke. So you call me Kevin. Okay. I'll, I'll call Chris. you Chris. Yeah, yeah it'd be great. Good. We ought to hey, do a show. What's that? We ought to do a show sometime. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm on your show. And hey, uh, bottom of my heart, thanks for what you're doing for Heritage because uh, Heritage used to be the heavy hitter in the business and really relied on thought and products that came out of here and uh, took a little different turn for a while. But you coming in here, it's been noticeable, like the, the energy's back, the intellectual rigor's back and just the engagement's back. And I just want to thank you. And that's not, I'm not spinning. I'm just like, we need, we need heritage to be strong. We need heritage to like be a voice that drives the conversation and the agenda. So thanks. Glad to be here. Well, that's kind of you to say, and, and on behalf of all of my colleagues, thank you. I can say just to hang on that point for a moment because our, our audience is keenly interested in, in what we're doing. Although plenty of people who weren't necessarily following heritage, perhaps because of, of what you were saying, this is the point. Having energy about the urgency of the moment there's a lot wrong in America, is not mutually exclusive from academic rigor, including on what we're going to talk about today primarily, which is defense policy. And neither of those excludes having fun. And so I can tell you, you know this from just walking around the halls as we were coming to our studio, we're having a good time while we're trying to take back the country. Kevin, that's so important. So I get a lot of feedback from my book, right? And you know what I always ask people? I'm like, did you chuckle at all? <laughs> like, I'll get these, I'll get these like long emails and texts talking about, you know, my policy prescriptions and all that. And 
it's important, don't get me wrong, but I also think it's important that it's accessible, you know, and that we don't have to quite take ourselves so seriously. It's a serious business. National security is a serious business, but uh, I think there's room to have a little chuckle once in a while. So we might have a few chuckles. No, so. no, serious face, man. I'm in. Mr. Secretary, <laughs> first question. I, I do want to talk about the book. We are going to get into your experiences when you were running the department, but I'm, I've not read your book fully yet. I, I've got a review. Did copy you get a that, chuckle? Did you get just? Did two, you chuckle once? Two. Your first few chapters. Okay. So it's, it's a really good ratio. My mission is complete. You're not even going to let me ask this question. Go ahead. You? I'm in. <laughs> no, it's all good. This is what you say in the introduction, and the book is entitled "Soldier Secretary: Warnings from the Battlefield in the Pentagon about America's Most Dangerous Enemies." So, from a little bit of chuckling to very serious matter, this is what you write. Unlike the typical book written by retired military men, which you are. This is not a book of recycled policy prescriptions or repackaged lessons in leadership. This is the story of one soldier's rise from a private in the Army Reserve to the highest office at the Pentagon. It's about the heroes I fought, you're writing this, alongside in Iraq and Afghanistan who didn't live to tell their tales. And the sacrifices my generation has made on behalf of our nation. It's about the rank-and-file troops I humbly served as Acting Secretary of Defense who bestowed on me an affectionate nickname the soldier secretary. This book is also about our country and how our military, our institutions, and our leaders failed to change in the decades following September 11, 2001, and how we must change in the future if America is to survive. That is the most profound paragraph I have read in a very long time. And I want to thank you for it. Hey, Kevin, I wrote that myself. That's not ghost written. You know, half those books that you get in are written by somebody else that was from the heart and, you know, uh, dug deep on that one. And, you know, I changed my whole happy-go-lucky uh, disposition, which I always use to try to, you know, make sure you're I'm approachable and can get information from the people that do all the work. But that's exactly uh, – you, you just got the paragraph that mattered from the book. So thank you. Well – you're welcome. And thank you for the book. I want to talk about what inspired you to write the book, which sort of gets into your story. So you're Green Beret. Thank you for your service. You, among other things, become acting secretary of defense in 2020 and 2021. Really challenging time. Slow time. Not much going on. It was like, I thought I'd just roll in there, you know, keep the chair warm, get myself a big wig position on a board of uh, directors someplace for a defense prime. Yeah, there wasn't much going on. And uh, that's, ir that's irony. That's our generation, remember? Yeah, I do remember. I know. I know. that every day, brother. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you had a, a really quiet last couple of weeks. Yeah, nothing much going yeah, on. Okay. Why the book? Why the book? Yeah. Did uh, join the Army in 83. Iowa City, Iowa, left the Army in 2014, retired. Wife said, I'm not moving anymore. You can go wherever you want. And if you're in a government town, what do you do? Get a government job. I was the cliche guy who takes his uniform off one day and 60 days later shows back up in the same office. Well, it's a different office, but, you know, wearing, wearing my Josephay Banks, which is out of business now, you know, four, four suits for like $200 or whatever. Um and then, so I ended up leaving government service in, what, 2020. And um, so I'd been just served everybody, didn't matter who, for what, don't do public math, 36, 37 years. I did 13 months as a political appointee and left government at 1201 on the 20th of January, 2021, without work, without any retirement 
income. Uh, had we never saved, we'd always spend it on our kids, and you can appreciate that when you're you living in some pretty tough places. You spend the money on your kids to make sure they have the opportunities, and uh, realized I needed something to do. And uh, thankfully, the publisher reached out and said, "Would you like to write a book?" And so. You know, that sounds like mercenary, right? But that's really the – I never thought – I never thought I was ever going to have an opportunity to write a book. You know, like who who cares what I have to say? Um, but the opportunity came. And then I know I'm long-winded, but – No, this you, is great. Thank you. You triggered me on this one. Good. Uh, the thing I'd seen over the years when I came in, the military and the society they protect were – pretty in alignment and close together and understood each other. And over the ensuing 30 something years, I saw this divergent and, uh, Admiral Mike Mullen talked about it. This was years ago. He talked about the fact that he was worried about the military was becoming isolated from the people it serves. And I really saw that after January 6th, where I just saw all this crazy, uh, talk. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, these people do not understand the military that they pay, what, about a trillion dollars a year for. So I thought that was one of the goals of the book was to try to tell a story in a approachable way that could help connect the two. And everybody always goes, well, you know, we need to understand the military more. No, the military also needs to understand the society that it defends and protects more too. So that's what I was trying to do with it. That's a pro- lot, 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 lot there. Sorry. No, there is a, a lot there, but it's good. And and one of the the values of this podcast is that we we like long form answers because we're so you, a plus on the long form. Oh answer. no, you need to give me the cutoff when I, oh, no, I just tap your finger and that's like boots. okay, Chris, you're going too long because you know I get passionate about it and that's why I love these long form podcasts. You do the shows and you do them too, where you've got to have your 25 second sound bite. You have to have your three points and just make your three points again and again and again. And that's why I'm just thrilled to be here to be able to talk a little more fulsomely. That, that's the whole point is people ask me as I travel around the country, they say, man, we love your podcast. And I was waiting and they say, well, not really because of you, because of the guests you have. They're, I think, being serious when they say that because the point of it is to get to people's stories. And, and I believe and this is very related to your book and why you wrote it, that one of the things missing in America, it's even missing in the conservative movement, is getting deeper than that kind of superficial interaction. Not that superficial is bad necessarily. It's just superficial. And when we're, we're doing those two or five-minute interviews with the big networks, and thankfully they're willing to have you and some of our guys on to talk about conservative stuff, it's just harder to, to get deeper. So I want that's to – that's artistic license that you have. Chris, to have some longer answers. I'm curious about something in the book, though. And, and usually when, when we have guests on who've written a recent book, there's something they learned, occasionally a story that they had forgotten that they bring forward into the book. But often they will say something like, Kevin, you know, that episode that I wrote about in the book reminded me of a really moving story in my life, or it was really life-altering. Did you have that kind of Awakening, if, if you will, about right. your experience, uh, whether in combat or as secretary, that the book helped reveal. Yeah. Wow. That's that that's heavy. That's like some artistic stuff that I really hadn't thought about. Because my sister asked me this great question uh, a couple weeks ago. She goes, why do you why did you do all that stuff? Why did you put up with it? And I literally that's was kind of the question. Yeah. I literally was. Uh, wow. I because. I'm, I'm from Iowa, head down plow, right? I'm like, because 
our family comes from a culture of public service and there's there's value and there's nobility in public service. Uh, but she was obviously talking about all the wire brushing you get when you're a public official and you get the same thing. You've got always somebody chirping off about how you're messed up or you did something wrong. I've noticed that. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard. It's it's serious business and everything with with uh, communications technologies today and everybody gets to sign up and decide, you know, how you did. Uh, and so the big one, though, for me was uh, I had a really transcendental moment in Djibouti. I talk about it briefly in the book, but not nearly in as much detail. Uh, went out there for Thanksgiving to serve the troops. Leaders in the military always go to the field on Thanksgiving Day, and they serve the troops. It's a cool, isn't that a great tradition? It really is. You know, and it's like you bring the people that do all the cooks and the servers out from behind the line, and you serve them. It's really cool. I love it. Well, it's kind of fun for like the first two or three. I think this was the fourth um, Thanksgiving meal we served. We th- we did Thanksgiving meal at 730 in the morning. I mean, we just hopscotched across the Middle East and we ended up in Djibouti. And I came in, um, got off the plane and, you know, it's pretty good living. You have your own plane. So I'm not complaining. It's not like I'm flying coach or anything, but it's late and uh, you have all these handlers, right? You don't, you're good. You don't have a lot of handlers. Try not to. Try not to. Yeah. You never will do that. You, you'll never do that. You're I need got, someone to help me keep track of my schedule because right, I'm you, still an absent-minded professor. You've got to do that. Yeah, you're but got, I don't have handlers. You're, in fact, it often surprises members of the Senate, especially where I walk in with one or two colleagues who are experts at what they're doing. I have to have them. I'm just a generalist. And they say, where's everyone else? Right. Yeah. Egalitarian leader is what I think you are, if I dare say. And I tried to do the same thing. Get off the plane. They put me in this ante room. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, you're going on. I said, going on where? I could see through this uh, steam-covered door. Uh, there's packed with Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, serving line. I was like, we're not going to take a little time off. I'm a little tired right now. Could I, like, get a cup of coffee and relax? And they were like, you're going, on, you're going in there. And I just, man, I was tired. I said, but I said, this is my job, right? This is what the American people are paying me for. Like, get your act together, Miller. Suck it up. You know, suck it up, Miller. And I took a deep breath and I went in there and they gave me a microphone like this. And I was like, wow, I felt like, you know, I was on, on like David Letterman or something. And I started doing my canned speech about thank you for your service. You know, I was doing all that. And the lines I usually use weren't working. And I'm watching the audience. I'm dying up there, right? I'm just dying. And the generals are all in the back watching me, and I'm just doing the platitudes, right? <laughs> it was like Charlie Brown, right? I have a nightmare about this tonight <laughs> it was like, on your behalf. It was like the peanuts, you know. I'm like, and I, Kevin, I'm literally thinking that's me right now. I'm the, I'm the teacher in peanuts. And out of nowhere, I saw this Marine sitting there, and she looked up at me, and I don't know what happened. I was like, I'm dying here. I need to do something. And I said, where are you from? And she, her face just was like, and I started chuckling because she was so shocked. And she started like, I don't think she'd expected to be talking to the acting secretary of defense. And the place came, I just started going around. I started talking to those, those that are serving us. And it was like, it was literally like, you know, going around a late night audience. And I'd, 
where are you from? Oh, I'm from Poughkeepsie Blanket Blank. I'm like, worst town in America, the bar and grill in the corner. And they'd be like, how do you know that? Um, but I got back that night and I was sitting on my bed and I was exhausted and I somehow had this vision. I remembered looking at the generals act there as I'm doing this stand-up routine uh, with, with the people that were honored to lead. And I could just, I, they had that look about like, this is unprofessional. You know, this is unbecoming of the position. And I sat there and I, I, I broke down hmm. and I said, man, I realized it's an epiphany almost of a religious sort where I realized that was a key moment in my development where I realized it's not about the generals. It's not about all the brass. It's about those kids down there that we, you know, they were taking selfies asking me, can I send this to my family? I'm like, of course you can send that to your family. And that was, that was kind of the moment where, uh, where I transcended the DC status quo and realized that, you know, I'm a leader and I'm there for those people, not for the political machinations. I'm not there for a doggone, you know, good job when I leave. So that triggered, you know, uh, as I was writing through it. Well, what a wonderful story. It, it reminds me of some of the the response of those military leaders with you in Djibouti reminds me of some of the early responses to General Grant's leadership of the Union Army. And I'm not talking about Grant's vices, uh, just talking about his style which was actually really egalitarian. And he not only had no time for the political machinations of Lincoln's cabinet and some of the high-ranking officials here in D.C., but he was very hostile to them. And it was one of the secrets to his success. And remember, he wouldn't wear rank. Exactly. He wore a field coat, a field soldier's coat. Yeah. He wore his old hat from Mexican-American War or whatever. Yeah. I mean, what a... You know, he's a quintessential American. You know, he's Galena, Illinois. I was say, there's a Midwesternness to that. Hey, I went out, I went out to visit Galena. I was home for college and my mom, we just like to travel together. It was only about an hour and a half. I said, I got, I'm going to Galena, mom. Come on with me. And I went out there to pay, trip to Galena. Yeah, to pay homage to, to, uh, General Grant, who, you know, really to me epitomizes what we should have in our, our senior leadership. On that point. We use this as a pivot toward some policy conversation, which we actually don't have to do in this show. No, let's go. But, but we're going to because it's timely. What do you say in the book about what we need to do with defense spending? Because I can tell you what's – to summarize what's happening in the movement, and you know what we're trying to do here at Heritage in the same way that we have staked out the so-called third way on foreign policy, neither isolationism nor interventionism. Let's be powerful but more restrained. We need to do that with defense spending. And, and it's amazing to me – a, the number of people, including members of Congress who really agree with that, but conversely, B, people who are friends, conservatives, who are stuck in 1980s thinking as if we have all the money in the world and we do whatever we want. That's really what I want to home in on. That's us. That's, I mean, we're a new generation, and I try to bring that up in the book. I'm, 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 I was a... I am a rock ribbed kind of Reagan Republican, you know, strength through, you know, peace through strength. Yeah, sure. peace through strength. I mean, who can't be? But you just hit it. We're in a different environment now. And the point, and you get this, and your listeners get this, and those that are watching get this. Like, 
the the bumper stickers, Miller, you know, decrees cut defense spending in half. And I always respond, well, I have to be a little provocative. You know, come on. Like the point. Try to sell books. The, the point is that, you know, we're spending, I know it's 858, but it's really a trillion. When you start wedging all that stuff in, you know, it's a trillion dollars. And here's my point. And you know this, we're refighting the Cold War. The fundamentals of warfare are changing right now. Not not the nature of warfare, fear, loathing, you know, all that stuff. I'm talking about how we do warfare. And, you know, so people go, well, where would you cut it? And I'm like, start with personnel. But what we really need is a new operating concept. A new, exactly. that's, that's what I'm trying to talk about. Like, no, we don't need more aircraft carriers. We, we need to employ our forces differently with different thinking. So that's where I'm trying to go with this. And there's a way to cut money and still maintain our capacity piece through strength. And people are like, no, we just need more money. Kevin, we've, we've been around here a while. Like, has any bureaucracy ever been forced to change their way of thinking when you just keep shoveling more money at them? That's what we're doing now. And and on that point, I, I've I've learned in my year plus in D.C., <clears throat> at least working in D.C., thankfully not sleeping here because the water would probably affect my thinking, that <laughs> it's a city of false dichotomies. And what I mean by that is in foreign policy, when we came out and said we're opposed to the particular legislation on Ukraine aid, even though we support military aid to Ukraine, we want the Ukrainians to win, we're billed as being pro-Putin. Which is just so stupid, frankly, to use I a saw. word I don't use often. Yeah, right. <clears throat> no, we just want it to be responsible, keeping in mind that, A, we need to ask, what's the interest of the American person in that? And secondly, make the statement, we don't have all the money in the world anymore. The same thing with defense spending. We've been calling recently to get a handle on some of the irresponsible nature of that, most of which comes from the political side. But the Pentagon, as you know better than anybody, is not blameless. That, therefore, means that we want the Department of Defense not to exist. That, that therefore, means we don't want America to be strong. And so I'm realizing the longer that I'm at Heritage, especially considering the long history of Heritage of telling the truth, even when the, the torpedoes are coming in, that we must be over the target because of who's responding and how they're responding, right? It's not so fun, though, is it? You know, oh, it's okay. It's, it worked because you we're know, we, do, we do operations in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and I could always tell the battle damage assessment oftentimes isn't like, okay, target captured or killed, population, you know, whatever the case may be. It would be how angry the government, the Iraqi government, which then meant, the chain of command got at moi, at me, because they're not calling down to the, you know, 30 people that were on target that night. And I knew that we were being effective the more I got yelled at by higher headquarters in the Iraqi government. I knew that we were having an effect then. And you have the same experience. You know, like, okay, I think we're in the sweet spot right now because everybody's yelling at us right now. Well, it's glorious, you know, when um, influential members of the Senate write, well, we read that piece from Heritage, and we really dislike it. I take that as a measure of success, because I don't mean to be you know, like a juvenile about this. I'm dead serious that it's a, it's a measure of success, because that same influential member of the Senate has been ignoring Heritage and the most thoughtful entities on the right on this issue for years, until, to your point about being provocative, we decided we were just going to speak in very plain and clear terms. So that's why I say I'm optimistic about this. 
for the movement. We just had Senator Hawley here from Missouri at, a, at an event recently, and he did such a good job of explaining all of this very clearly. Surely room for differences of opinion. Heritage will always embrace that, right? We'll give someone a platform who disagrees with us if, in fact, they're well-intentioned. The point is, let's just have the conversation, which is what you're trying to prompt with your book. You brought up something, though. You have a PhD, so you can get away with it. You never sound, you never sound childish. But, you know, the rest of us can be criticized for, you know, being facile and, like, not serious. And, and uh, you know, that is a concern of the book. My, my book is like, okay, you try to have a sense of humor. You try to tell some, you know, uh, some stories. I had a buddy of mine that I'd served with for years. He goes, hey, Chris, you, you say so you're really going to write this book? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to write this book. He said, do me a favor. Don't make it one of these books where you do everything right. Why don't you tell us about the things, the mistakes you made? And, you know, in the military, it's always about lessons learned. And so, you know, that that was the point of what I was trying to do. But oftentimes you can be disregarded because, you know, by showing your failures and showing your weakness and maybe showing some humor, somehow you're seen as less serious. And I get that all the time, Kevin, by the way. And, you know, I don't care anymore. Good. I just don't care because these are the things we need to talk about. And, and however we can get our message out, I'll take the opportunity. So where's this policy conversation going regarding defense spending? And you, you made the provocative statement or, or proposal in your book, let's cut defense spending roughly by half. What do you mean by that? I mean, what, 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 is it, what does the end game look like? If I gave you a magic wand and said, redesign defense spending, reposition America's um, posture, what does that look like? Retool, you know, it starts with the, I, in my book, you know, the, the most important weapon system is the six inches between the ears of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and guardians. I really mean that truthfully. There's there's a fervent ferment right now in the lower ranks that recognize that we can't keep doing the same thing in the military that we've been doing in the past, which is refighting the Cold War, really. And we're really looking forward to going back to that. A lot of people are. So the the way to here's my proposal, and it's kind of hidden in the policy recommendations, which I laughed. So can I tell a story? Of course. Doggone publisher you know we we do our outline or and i had a great co-writer ted royer uh who would then take all my crazy things like i would so kevin i would write like each chapter had to be i think seven thousand words i'd go i'd throw up in the paper fifteen thousand words i just let it all out i talk about clausewitz and the meaning of all this and ted would be like i got this he pulled like red ink all all my things and get it down to a couple paragraphs um so the publisher goes, hey, we need po- – we need the last chapter has to be policy recommendations. <laughs> Kevin, I haven't shared this with anybody, only with Heritage. I was like, nobody wants to read that stuff. <laughs> they're like, no, because I thought they just wanted a kiss and tell book about the Trump administration, right? And they're like, no, that's not what we want. We want a book that – that sets the stage for going forward. So I was like, okay. So I took it seriously. And one of the policy recommendations is talking about how to change our operational and our strategic context for national security, for military specifically. And my thing is we need to go away from large standing forces, reduce the size, have an exquisitely high tech active duty force. Like, like, So envision this. Well, first off, let's go ahead. Let's take our intelligence professionals and our special operators that are trained to work independently overseas. Let's they're global scouts. They're everywhere. Right. And they're sensing the environment. 
and they're, if they pick up something that's going wrong that needs additional assets or attention that comes back into the system. If they need additional capability, that comes forward from the United States. So let's bring the vast majority of our large force, large uh, force presence home. And then we can pull that forward, whether it's a handful of people, whether it's a psychological operations team, whether it maybe it's a civil affairs team that's going to dig wells. I don't know what it is. You pull that forward as necessary. And then you have you know, response forces, their tiered readiness, right? So you've got a force ready at 72 hours that could be anywhere in the world. If those sensors go, if, if our global scouts go, oh, it's fixing to happen, I need some serious combat power out there. Boom, rapidly deployable, they get in, and then you can build combat power. So you save a lot of money by reducing the size of the force, but the key thing is we need to go back to the history of this country, which is the citizen soldiers and the National Guard. Let's keep the because you never know what's going to go ahead. No, I say break. you never know what's going to happen. Like so, every here's the here's the critique right now is like, well, what if we get in a major conventional war with China? Well, first off, that's the stupidest thing we could ever do, Doctor Roberts. I'm just saying, if we can't figure out a way to compete against China and advance our agenda without direct combat th this is like strategic failure beyond all human understanding at least in the american sense so my point is you know if you have to have a large conventional war a la world war ii you have the trained personnel in the national guard and the reserve that are heightened level of training that's you know the folks that do one weekend a month two weeks during the summer they do a lot more let's be clear so that that's kind of one of the ideas i have so reduce the size of the active duty force hyper enabled that can operate effectively and then if things go really really bad you just have we call it the iron mountain you got the iron mountain the like tens and hundreds of thousands of people that just come forward with tanks and all that stuff. But let's keep that back in the United States. There's a lot of wisdom and common sense in that. And, and one element of this, which will sound like it's it's from, from right field, maybe left field, it, 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 your comment about the National Guard and increasing those ranks is what has prompted this for me. Obviously, clear military reasons for that. But one of my worries, in fact, I would say this is probably my chief worry about the United States. It's related to what you're saying, but not so directly is the lack of civil cohesion that you and I knew when we were growing up, you in Iowa, I on the Gulf Coast, was there, even though, you know, there were the early signs of America coming apart. I've been rereading William F. Buckley's great book on gratitude. Gratitude's the heart of the conservative, right? And in that, and this is decades ago now, he was calling for a National Civil Service Corps. It seems like we could take that idea and merge it with what you're saying. We're trying to do policy thinking out loud about where we're sitting here because that alone, I think, would address civil cohesion, uh, uh, just an utter lack of patriotism in the proper sense. It seems like that's what conservatives need to be talking about. So that's that's recommendation number one, one is universal service. And it doesn't have to be just military service. Right. I don't care. Go work in a nursing home, uh, teacher's aid, go work in the national park. If you want to go overseas, we can have a little kind of quasi Peace Corps thing. But you know, remember those, remember watching those World War II 
movies where they'd be in the they'd be in the bowels of the ship or they'd be in the barracks and there would there'd be a guy from New York City and then you had the, you had your guy from the south and then you'd have this like Rube from the Iowa you know they're usually from Iowa I know they were always from Iowa right and then you'd have somebody from Chicago and that the effect that that had on bringing our society together and you know that's one of the things I think is important. So I do these informal surveys every time I go out. I do it with the younger people uh, because they're the ones that have to do it. And I'll say, hey, if you had an opportunity uh, after high school to do universal service for two years, you come out the other side with education, kind of a VA, a veterans bill type thing where you'd have benefits on the backside. Nine out of ten say they would be interested. Really? There's always one person, and I respect the heck out of the one person who goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He goes, it's, it's against the Constitution. It's always a very libertarian mindset. And I was like, You're, I can't argue with you, and so let's go ahead and put in a structure that protects you and your, your beliefs. I mean, we used to have conscientious objectors, right? So I, I think there's something there. And it went – All right. Can I go there? It's $14 billion – $14 billion for an aircraft carrier, four-class aircraft carrier, exquisite, been out there. I mean, you can't help but get motivated. Like, this is America. But I then go, well, we're doing all these hypersonic missiles now, and everybody can find everything on their cell phone now. I'm like, I don't know if this is such a good idea. $14 billion for one aircraft carrier we could do in a universal service thing beyond reproach. Now, the counterargument is don't let the government do anything like this. But you know Civilian Conservation Corps who ran that. The military ran that. And many people claim that their organization concepts and the leadership that those officers and sergeants had to do during that period, during the Great Depression, were directly responsible for the success we had in World War II because they learned about large organizations and logistics and all that stuff. That's an underappreciated reality about why the United States was able to, in effect, this is an overstatement, turn on a dime from a peace footing to a war footing right. in World War II. I didn't expect to talk about this. This is awesome because this is I'm, – I'm uh, conspiring. I won't use this member of the House's name because we, we haven't said anything publicly about it. But let's just say this member is a defense hawk and gets a little concerned. He always airs this very productively when Heritage talks about being more responsible in defense spending because he hears cuts and being opposed to the Pentagon. And this person says, uh, you know, you're, you're sounding like Bernie Sanders. When I mentioned this idea of, as you put it, Universal Service Corps, he said, that's it. So there's, the point is there's something there that intrinsically in the idea is good for our civil society and for our military, but also on the policy and political level, because it's the job of Heritage to put coalitions together for good legislation. It also seems like it bridges this apparent gap between where you might be and where this very thoughtful member of Congress is. All that to say Heritage is going to be working on this. And, uh, and I really look forward to involving you in that. So the book is something that everyone watching or listening should buy. I'm convinced. I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. You shouldn't. Your publisher would say, <laughs> yeah. we never have this guy again. But uh, I, I read the first quarter of it earlier today. I'll, we'll finish it. And, and I'm convinced, and I mean this, that based on our discussion, it's, it's going to be a really important read given where the conservative movement is, but even for someone who's not a conservative to, to, to read because of your experience. Speaking of your experience, I'm curious what the last few weeks of your job as acting secretary of defense were like. This is January 2020. Right. You know, um, 
really, really concerned that a foreign actor was going to take advantage of the kind of political, let's be honest, it was kind of political chaos at the time. Uh, Fair statement. Yeah. So really, really concerned that they would, because um, they don't really, like the Iranians and the Chinese, like I don't, this isn't offensive to them, I don't think. I don't think they understand America and how we work. And I think they probably were, you know, mirror imaging through their, through, through their experiences like, oh, you know, the Republic is at risk, which the Republic wasn't. I mean, that upsets me so much. Like, that people question the resiliency of the American people, that somehow, you know, the Republic was at risk. But that's, you know, well, historians are going to figure that one out. My wife always gets mad at me. She goes, why do you always like, you know, you'll be very forthright in some things and other things you like sound like you're doing talking points. I'm like, no, let's let the system work through this. Let's let the investigations continue. Let's figure this out. I'm not passing judgment yet. She goes, oh, my gosh. Um, but those weeks were um, – I, I felt like I was back in the zone, though. I just you felt had like, to. yeah, I was. I wasn't really sweating it. I mean, I was like, I know how to do this. I know how to do crisis action stuff. I mean, that's what I. That sounds probably really um, odd, and I don't mean it to sound arrogant or anything. But you know, that's what military leaders do. Is like that's what you're you trying deal to with, do. Yeah. So I felt felt I felt kind of comfortable in a weird, perverted sort of way. Like, oh yeah, so things are. A lot of chaos right now, and uh, but I was really, really concerned that somebody's going to steal a march on us. I'd sit here and talk to you the rest of the afternoon, so we need to be sure and have you back on the show before you write your next book. Yo, that's never <laughs> happening. That never experience. Say never. But the last question, you're clearly optimistic and realistic. Why? I mean, there's, there's a lot. I travel the country a lot. Um, there's a lot of almost despair out there. And, and I, I'm not into that, but I'd always try to use the last question with guests to get their feedback on that for our audience who, who they, they watch the news, they, they listen to podcasts. It's doom and gloom. There's plenty to be frustrated by. So I don't mean this in a Pollyannish way, but why did you wake up today thinking that, man, five years from now, 10 years from now, America's going to be okay. Assuming that you did. You got three kids. Four. Four? You got four? I thought you had three. Yeah, we're Catholic. I got, I got three. <laughs> yeah, of course. I got three. And uh sounds probably so, like, uh, Pollyannish, but they're so much smarter than we were. We are. It's true. They're so much more capable, and they're so much more, um, like, I had... So I gave this speech one day. I took over a unit, a battalion-sized unit, and I gave the old speech that about like it's we're, it's us against them everybody's against us and it didn't work and i was like i'm dying here again and somebody came up one of the old guys came up to me and goes hey sir these kids believe i was like what are they they believe he goes sir they joined the military because they believe in the promise of america and i was humbled right so i had to change my approach so why do i believe i be, i absolutely have un, unbelievable faith in the founders uh vision and i you know you deal with this all the time it's like we in america love to always go the best is behind us and every time it kind of works out like remember remember when we were growing up and the japanese were going to destroy us economically Do you remember when they would go beat up they, like the uaw would like smash like dots and cars remember that with sledgehammers 
It didn't happen. So I've got like unredeemable faith in the common sense and the of the American people and the brilliance of the founders. Great answer. Mr. Secretary, Chris Miller, thanks for joining me. Dr. Roberts, thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. All kidding aside, uh, thanks for everything you've done for this country. It's what we do. Well, I told you you would probably like this episode. I trust that you did. Thanks again to my friend Chris Miller for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. Will the next guest be as entertaining as Secretary Chris Miller? That remains to be seen, so you got to tune in. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.